vocations have rules. They have guides that govern them, right? I'm thinking particularly of the trades. You have codes that construction workers have to build according to. And sometimes we might find these frustrating uh, or a way for the government to make more money. But they're on the whole good, right? We use the codes so that we can have a safe building that can be inhabited for many years. And the we're reminded when things go wrong sometimes. I, I was watching a week back with the collapse of the condominium in Florida, and many knew that it was not structurally sound, and yet nothing was done. And so we're reminded of the importance of codes, of guides that will lead us in how we are to construct our vocations and, and live, how we are to engage in our callings, we need rules. We need, we need a guide. And in many ways, as we've been looking at the parables in, the math, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been laying out a picture of a, for us of what it looks like to inhabit the kingdom of God. What it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. How we are to live. We, we saw a few weeks back that we are to be characterized by forgiveness in the parable of the unforgiving servant. We, we saw that he was forgiven so much, and yet he refused to turn and forgive. Jesus used that as an illustration to show what kind of people we are to be. How are we to be characterized? By forgiveness. In the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God is to be sincere, to have faith that proceeds from a heart that loves God. It's not just obedience for obedience's sake, but obedience for love's sake driven by our desire to please the Lord. Jesus lays all of this out in parables. And if you'll recall, parables are comparisons with sceneries and stories that are drawn from everyday life in order to conceal and reveal spiritual truths relating to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uses everyday, ordinary situations to draw our attention to some aspect of of the Christian life. And today, as we look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus compares Christian di- discipleship to two everyday items, salt and light. And these are to make up the character of a Christian and our discipleship. Well, what he does, what the character of Christian? And we've been answering this question all along. But Now we turn to the parable of salt and light, and Jesus shows us that Christian discipleship requires faithful preservation as salt to to prevent the decay and death that is all around us, and faithful presence to illuminate the dark world in which we inhabit. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read just a few short verses, beginning in verse 13. Jesus is speaking, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He has just finished the Beatitudes. And then he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we do thank you for this, your word. And we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand, so that we may behold wonders out of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Jesus says, you are, and it's emphatic. He is speaking to his disciples saying, you are. You, my disciples, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Each of these are to characterize the Christian in their vocation, in their calling to live out their faith before a watching world. So what does Christian character, Christian discipleship require? It requires faithful preservation. My wife and family and I like to watch a show on TV called Worst Cooks in America, partly because I see myself in some of them, They gather all the worst cooks in America, and they try to teach them how to cook. And of course, it's a competition, so they're all against each other for the top spot. But one thing that the two chefs emphasize over and over is that you have to season the food. You have to put more salt. Salt, salt, salt. Every episode, they're driving them to see you have to season The food. Salt is important just for the flavor of food. But I dare say there is not a house in America that does not have salt in it, right? It's so prevalent everywhere. We use it every day. And there's so many uses for it that you come to a parable like this and and Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. And we think, What does that mean? I don't know what that means because I use salt for all these different kinds of purposes. And in fact, we use the word salt in different ways in our own vocabulary that are that as we find, they're not really matching up to what Jesus description. We use it kind of proverbially to mean someone who's down to earth. You know, they're they're an upstanding citizen, right? They're good in their community. He's he's the salt of the earth, right? That's somebody who's just got a good character. Or we might say he is salty or she is salty. Right? And that means they're kind of like a curmudgeon. They're grumpy all the time. Right? We know some salty people. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> and then we have take it with a grain of salt. And that means that you should listen kind of suspiciously with doubt. Like it's not all truth what you're hearing. Well, Jesus isn't referring to salt in any of those ways. But those are the ways we talk about salt. So we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth? And the important for us, when we're describing what the Christian life is, is not to look about, but to look at the word of God. So we find that Jesus is using the term salt covenantally. And that's scripture uses salt all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe aspects of our Christian walk. So I want, to, I want to look at how it's used. Salt is a symbol of covenant fidelity, of faithfulness. 
You see, salt in the form of sodium chloride is stable. Geologists, scientists will tell you it's a stable property. It doesn't break down. It can't be, it can't lose its, it can't really lose its saltiness. Now, you're thinking, well, Jesus said it just could. It could lose its saltiness and be good for nothing to be thrown out. Well, the context helps us here because salt in the first century was harvested from the Dead Sea. And it wasn't pure. It was mixed with all kinds of other minerals. And often as it evaporated, it would be left with less sodium chloride and more of other kinds of minerals that aren't as salty and would lose their flavor very quickly. And then the salt would not work. It would not be good for preserving things. So it could be impure because it's mixed with other things. But salt is always seen as being stable. It's enduring. It can stand fire, water, time, and it doesn't lose its flavor. This is the way that the Bible speaks about it when it says a covenant of salt, as in Leviticus 2.13, Numbers 18.19, and 1 Chronicles 13.5. There, the scriptures are referring to a covenant of salt. You might be asking, well, what's a covenant of salt? Well, it was used to symbolize the enduring character of God's covenant with his people, that it never ends. So if you looked at 2 Chronicles 13, 15, for instance, there the covenant of salt is contrasted with the covenant with David. God promises that he will never break his covenant with David, that there will always be a king on David's throne. And that's like the covenant of salt, which is enduring. It lasts forever. So we, as a people, are to represent covenant faithfulness to the world. Our character is to be one of fidelity. That is faithfulness to God. Also, secondly, salt is a symbol of purity. This is perhaps the best known use of salt as a preservative to purify something. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19-22. through 22. This is a story of Elijah. He is, people come to him from a city, and their well is, has bad water, and it is leading to sickness and barrenness within their community. And Elijah tells them to go and get him a bowl of salt, and he pours salt into the well, and it purifies the well. Now, obviously, God is the one purifying the well, but it stands... Salt stands as a symbol to purify. It was used um, very often before refrigeration to preserve food, to keep it from decaying. It was an agent to keep back death and decay. And so we are to be a preservative in society, keeping back the world around us from descending into death and decay. The third thing that salt symbolizes is judgment. This is best seen in the episode with Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story. God tells Lot and his family to flee Sodom and Gomorrah because he's going to bring judgment down upon them. And he does. And as he is doing that, and as Lot and his wife and children are fleeing, his wife turns back and she is immediately turned into a pillar of salt. See, it wasn't just a looking out of curiosity. Wow, I've never seen God destroy a city. Let me find out what's happening. It was a look of longing 
of desire, of missing something, of wanting that city not to be destroyed, of craving and desiring the city of man and show Lot's wife is included in its destruction. And she is a constant reminder, a pillar that was to be a reminder of God's judgment, a pillar of salt. And so salt also symbolizes judgment. So we see as we combine these symbols of salt within the scripture, we get a covenantal picture of what Jesus is calling us to do when he says, you are the salt of the earth. He is calling us to be faithful preservatives, both for the good of the world and for its judgment. Of course, this implies our judgment. It's so good it's just left in the sea. It's just left in its salt marsh. It is to be used. We're not to seclude ourselves off into our Christian ghettos and never have contact with the world around us, but we are to be engaged in the world as Christians, salting the world around us, preserving it from descending further into idolatry. If our vocation is to be salt, the question is, how do we maintain our saltiness? If it's something that Jesus warns that we could lose, how is it that we maintain our saltiness? Well, there's no fancy answer. It's very simple. We abide in Christ. Christ calls us to abide in Him, to walk with Him, to follow Him. And this means that we avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace. As our catechism says, the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, is an effectual means of salvation. It is an effectual means of causing us, if I may press the metaphor a little bit too far, to be abiding in the one who is salty. That's no gimmick. It's no program. We come to worship each Lord's Day. We spend a considerable time each week with God's people and reading the Word and praying each day. And that enables us to maintain our Christian character as a faithful preservative and keeps us from conforming to the world, becoming that salt that is good for nothing but to be thrown out. Proverbs twenty five twenty six says, Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. You see, we lose our saltiness when we don't differ from the world. When we look the same, we talk the same, we do the same things. We resemble them in every way. How will they differentiate between what is salt and what is not salt? Martin Luther in his commentary said this, when the office, and he's referring to salt, when the office in Christendom deteriorates so that one ceases to reprove the people and does not show them their misery and their inability, nor insist upon repentance and self-knowledge, but lets them live along as if they were pious and all right and thus allows their wrong notions of self-righteousness and self-chosen worship to prevail so long until the true doctrine concerning faith is entirely wrecked and Christ is lost and things come to such a pass that there is no help for it. It's a bleak picture of a society 
when Christians are not salt, when they refuse to do their vocation. And for Martin Luther, and I think for Jesus as well, that is calling people to recognize their lost condition, hopeless without Christ, reproving and rebuking them, not allowing them to stay in their sins or to think that their self-righteousness is enough. We have so many instances in the Christian church where our lives have not been different than the world. We look at our divorce rates, which are scarcely different. Do you know that fatherlessness is destroying our country? When a father comes to faith in Christ, did you know that 93% of his family will follow him? But when a mother comes to faith in Christ, 17% of her family will follow her. 18.3 million children, or one in four, live without a biological step or adoptive father. Children who grow up without a father are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. They're more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to face abuse and neglect, two times greater risk of infant mortality. They're more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to go to prison, two times more likely to suffer obesity, more likely to commit crime, two times more likely to drop out of high school. Fatherless is a pandemic in our nation. And what are we doing? Churches are often filled with wives and mothers, while husbands and fathers are at home. The game is on. Something is more important. And fathers are not stepping up to lead their families to be salt and light in the world. This is just one example of the many ways that we have caved. We've given way before the wicked. But living as salt is, it's not easy. It, it, it often leads to persecution. Think of how, how many of you have gotten salt in a wound. It stings. You are the salt and the world is a wound. You are constantly going around stinging burning. It's a sensation that the world doesn't want. There's always a temptation not to do that, to soften it, not to make it so salty. You want to be comfortable around other people. And I'm not saying that we need to be belligerent. I'm not saying we need to go around looking for ways we can rub salt in people's wounds. But I am saying that we should have that kind of effect on people just by living our lives as Christians. We get into trouble when we try to ease that. What are you like? Christian character requires faithful preservation. It requires that we live as the salt of the earth. And because our good works glorify God, we must live as salt, like a preservative before a watching world. But Jesus goes on in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. Again, emphatic. You, my disciples, you are the light of the world. We are light because we are in the light. We are light because we are in Christ. Jesus 
even as he in the same breath says, you are the light of the world, he goes on to say, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, he warns them. It's unheard of to have a city that it's set on a hill and for you not to be able to see it. It's clear for the world to see. You would never install lighting under the table. Somebody might, but for what purpose? Right? You put lights up high so that it illumines the whole room. See, Jesus is calling us to be light. What does it mean to be light? John's gospel makes this explicit. When Jesus stands up and proclaims to the crowd, I am the light of the world. Whoever will follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John eight twelve. We are light because we are in the light. We are light because we follow him who is light. Light, what does light do? Light dispels the darkness. What happens when you turn the light on in a dark room? Room! The darkness goes away. There's no corner where the light doesn't penetrate to. And that's what we are to be. We are to be the light that exposes what is hidden by darkness, namely sin and wickedness. We are to shine the light of the gospel on the hurt, the broken, those who are hungering and looking for light. To be connected to Christ is to have darkness banished. To be regenerated is to be illuminated. To have the eyes of our heart opened. But those who still sit in darkness are spiritually blind. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. But, he says, for us, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that. But we have a real enemy. A real enemy who has blinded the hearts and minds of those we come in contact with. But we have been illuminated. Our eyes have been opened and we have seen the truth. truth. Our, our culture has said, what is truth? Echoing Pilate, what is truth? You have your truth, I have my truth. We come to illumine that kind of darkness. Jesus came to illuminate the dark world and he calls us to follow him and to do that same thing. I don't know if any of you have been a part of a Tenebras service. We had one for Good Friday, and that was kind of a, a reverse of what I'm thinking. But at Christmas Eve, while I was in seminary, I went to a, attended a Tenebras service. And the service starts in darkness, symbolizing the, the darkness before Christ came in the Incarnation. And there's only one candle up on the stage. And then the pastor takes that one candle and lights somebody up in the front row. And then they light their neighbor's candle and on and on. The, the light of the candle spreads from the front of the sanctuary to the back. So that at the end of the service, 
the entire sanctuary is illuminated. And it's a powerful reminder of the way that the gospel works. It starts with one heart being transformed. No longer are they blinded by Satan, but they see the face of God. They see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They're overwhelmed with joy, so they go and tell someone else. And the light spreads. And it spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to the outermost parts of the world. And so we are gathered here this morning in Scranton, worshiping God because we have seen the light of the gospel because others were faithful in their vocation. And this illustrates well missionary zeal, the desire to go and proclaim the gospel, the desire to go as light and go into a dark place and minister, even when it's dangerous. But even as we we see that Jesus calls us to be the light of the world, in the very same breath, He warns us. And you can be sure if the Lord is warning us, it's going to be something that we're going to have a problem with. Why would someone hide the light? John, again, in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, he said this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Darkness hates light and works hard not to be exposed, tries desperately to cover itself. Every persecution of Christians throughout the church history is a battle between light and dark. They cannot arrest the dawning of light. That's what we see in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. What do we see but the unstoppable movement of the kingdom of God? It's a, it cannot be stopped. It can't be thwarted by persecution or martyrdom. It will continue to go on. But, there, but that doesn't mean that they won't try. Anyone who labors long under those kinds of conditions will face the temptation to conceal the light, to put the light under the table so that they can stay alive, they can preserve themselves to keep from suffering, facing the hardships that will inevitably come. We are watching a strange phenomenon in the evangelical world, and that is that children are converting parents. What do I mean by that? I mean, how do, how do evangelical parents become woke? How do they become open and affirming? Well, because they're children. Their children are taught these things in school, and then they want to love their children. They want to have a good relationship with them. And so they're forced, they think, to go back to the Scriptures and say, well, did Jesus really say that? Paul, was Paul really, I don't know, that's probably a cultural thing. They, my son is a loving friend. And they become open for me. And it's the children that are leading the parents astray. 
when it should be the parents who are leading and shaping and molding their children. This is largely because our schools have far more impact on your kids' worldview than you do. It's high time that Christian parents get their kids out of the public schools. The pressure there for our kids to conform is ten times greater than you and I face or faced when we were a kid. Caesar does not make good Christian kids. Only Christ does. So stop giving them to Caesar and expecting Caesar to make saints. I was reminded of this a couple weeks ago when I saw on Twitter the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir saying this, and listen to these lyrics. This is very open and for anyone to see. They're not hiding this. It said, We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit. Quietly and subtly, and you'll barely notice it. We'll convert your children. We'll make them tolerant and fair. We'll convert your children. Yes, we will. Reaching one and all, there's really no escaping it, because even Grandma likes RuPaul. The world's getting kinder. Gen Z's gayer than grinder. We're coming for them. We're coming for your children. The gay agenda is coming home. The gay agenda is here. I, I didn't make that up. right? We have been saying as Christians for a long time that there was an agenda. And everyone shouted us down and saying, there's no agenda. There's no plan. But there is a plan. They are coming for your children. And what are we doing to live as salt and light in that situation? How are we bearing witness to the gospel of grace in our own lives? Living as a Christian will cost you because if you stand up in opposition, you will get canceled. You will get rolled over. You will be labeled a hater and a bigot and a homophobe. How do we as Christians live in the midst of that kind of situation? How do we bear witness to what God has done in our lives as light exposing the darkness? Well, we have to be faithful. We have to have a presence. Paul says, warning them not to eat with the sexually immoral. Not the sexually immoral of the world, for then you would have to leave the world. But the sexually immoral in the church. We cannot leave the world. We must be in the world for the sake of the world, for the good of the gospel, so that the world around us will see our good works and glorify our Father. How will they see if we're not among them? How will they see if we do not live as light, exposing darkness? As conservatives, we sometimes get a a bad rap because we set ourselves in opposition to things like the social justice movement. It'll be like, well, don't you care about justice? Yes, of course I care about justice. Don't you care about the poor? Of course I care about the poor. Don't you care about immigrants? Of course. But justice according to who? Who gets to decide what is just? And how, what is the answer to the problem that we are all facing of injustices? Biblical justice recognizes that the effects of the sin are so far-reaching that we are unable, apart from Christ, to be just. 
to have just systems. The only remedy to undo the injustice that permeates society is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ, the innocent victim, died to remove the guilt of sin and grant us as unworthy sinners perfect righteousness. That's justice. The gospel, not legislation. The gospel, not critical race theory. The gospel, not intersectionality, is the only place sinners can find perfect justice. If you're not first reconciled to God, how on earth could you be reconciled to your brother or sister? If you're not at peace with God, peace with your brother or sister. The, ample, the simple answer is you will never. We will work tirelessly, but if you work apart from Christ, you will never build a utopian society where it's just. One group will always oppress and persecute another group. It doesn't matter. That's our sinful tendency apart from Christ. But in Christ, we are all one. The barrier has been torn down. That enmity that existed for so long. And now we can love someone who doesn't look like me or come from the same socioeconomic class as me. We can love them because they are made in the image of God And brought into the household of God. And by faith are following the same person that I'm following. How do we live as light? We model justice in our church. In our community. In our families. We love one another. And that love bears witness to what God has done in our hearts. There's no other way to change society. You could fight till you're blue in the faith for the right legislation, it will not accomplish what only the gospel can accomplish. And we have to be communities that model that. Communities that are salt, preserving, beating back death and decay. Living as salty Christian requires that we are faithful to the covenant. Providing purity and, when needed, judgment amidst a hell-bent culture. And living as light means abiding in Christ who is our light. It means exposing the darkness of sin and working to reverse its effects in our world. Living as salt and light requires faithful preservation and faithful presence. Because good works glorify God, we must live as salt and light before a watching world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, in whom we find perfect justice. The innocent sufferer became for us perfect righteousness so that we who were guilty and undeserving have been extended grace and mercy. And we can extend that same grace and mercy to others. As we shine the light of the gospel, which is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to an unbelieving but watching world. Equip us and strengthen us to live as salt and light in this world. Preserving against decay and exposing the darkness in our world. 
where we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen.